Hi, Stevie. How are you doing today? I'm doing okay. How are you? Doing okay. It's an okay day. It's an okay day. I had fun with you today. Yeah, I had fun with you too. It is hot today. Yeah, it's going to be even hotter tomorrow. Yippee. We were walking around and I was like, heat's kind of erotic, isn't it? The amount of episodes of television that I've watched where they've like played on extreme heat being erotic is enough to prove your point. That yeah. Yes, well, I was telling her, I was telling Emily today that like I'm my hometown, it's like over 120 degrees today. I don't know what that, in Fahrenheit, I don't know what that would translate to Celsius. Um, and that like everyone, and it's not a town where you walk anywhere. It's a very much a, dr- a driving town. And so everybody's just kind of inside suffering on their own um but here it's like everybody still has to walk out and like be in the city so it's like everybody walking together everybody's hair is up everybody's kind of glowy everyone is like breathing slightly heavy it's like it's erotic <laughs> <He's> <laughs> wild there's a scene in mad men where hmm, this is not no it's not a spoiler but there's a scene in mad men where um betty the don's wife well, I guess, whatever yeah. Don's wife um is at home and she it's so hot it's an Indian summer which is absolutely feels racist yeah but it's like the last week of summer or something or it's like the first week in September where it's just like irrationally hot like hotter than it's been all summer mm-hmm. um and so she's like alone obviously she's at home and because she's a housewife and um this man comes to her door and asks if she wants air conditioning and like she's like oh i don't really know my husband's not home and he's like it would just take like a second i just have to measure your windows and then like we can get get it installed when your husband's home and she's like okay so like he comes in and then like she's walking up the stairs with him behind her and she like realizes that it's not smart and so um she makes him leave and uh-huh. he's just like okay so he leaves right but then later on i don't know if it's the same day or later on that week she's doing the laundry and she leans up against the washing machine to like get the detergent oh yeah you told me about this yeah and um and it's still really hot and she fantasizes about him and about the air conditioning man and it fits your theme very well. Yeah. Everyone's horny. It's very hot. It's very sweaty. It's wild. <laughs> Do we have any Australian listeners? Because I know it's cold there right now. <laughs> Is it actually? Yeah. Oh, and then the episode of The L Word, which of course. Yeah, it was The L Word, Heat Wave, <laughs> season five. <laughs> Anyways, you know what really, I was just thinking, what really cuts the eroticness of heat is global warming. <laughs> <laughs> Just a little bit. Anyways, do I do a question? (laughs) Sure. Hope you all are hot and horny. So I'm going to read a sort of abbreviation of this question because it's, um, there was a lot. Just to make it clear and concise, I'm going to read just a a little bit. Um, 
So it says, hi, so lately I've been getting more annoyed than usual by the mainstream feminism I'm seeing on Twitter as my timeline because it became predominantly users from the U.S. or Europe. I find myself not being able to talk about these differences or even the social and economic issues I have to deal with or that I have to see on a day-to-day basis with mutuals since whenever I raise or mention something they don't know much about, it always seems to go instantly back to that U.S. Eurocentric conversation or, even more often, just getting completely ignored. I'm sure you know that media, history, and pretty much everything is monopolized by those views. And for example, we know almost everything about your U.S., politics, culture, current events, etc., when you know nothing about ours. And feminism, of course, is no exception to that. And then they said, I wanted to keep it as short as I could, but if you're interested and have any thoughts on this, I would love to hear them. The, like the way to make this discussion substantial um, is like turning it into something maybe about like like intersectional feminism um how what the question talks about which is how u.s feminism often dominates the conversation and how often that is white feminism that dominates the conversation Mm -hmm. around all feminisms yeah because everything that you said whoever submitted this question is accurate um and i think that that goes well beyond feminism in the sense that like every most other nations most other places learn about u.s history um but we rarely if ever learn about other nations history Mm -hmm. and that just comes down to living in a white supremacist westernized world yeah um where the where globalization and colonization are at the center of it um, and have always been. Mm-hmm. And so along with the exploitation of that, um, the narratives have been exploited and centered around that as well. But as far as like conversations go, um, I mean, I took a, um, I, I graduated with a sociology degree um, with a concentration in gender studies and one of the first classes that I took within that major was global feminisms. And um, I was, it completely opened my mind um, because I had been so uh, indoctrinated, not indoctrinated, but I had been so um, sheltered, I guess, in thinking that there was a right and a wrong way to pursue feminism Mm -hmm. and to um, generate equality across the world. Mm -hmm. And that very much so falls. Okay. Here's a little disclaimer as I could talk about this all day. um, So I'm going to try my best to make it coherent and like not get overexcited and go on tangents. And also I'm going to try really, really hard not to name a bunch of philosophers who mean, who are just like, whose names are just going to be thrown in here. But I do want to credit it, credit them because you no, credit it. Sound like the smart bitch you are. No, no, no. Because here's the thing. It's like, there is no answer. Right. Right. Like there is no answer to how we bridge the gap other than, making education other than making the education and the conversations more intersectional and more multicultural as opposed to white uh um based in or centered in white supremacy well you have the space to 
do so because um, while I know that this is a major issue within feminism and all activism, um, I haven't put any critical thought into, I haven't put critical thought into the specifics of that, which is wrong. So I'm very open to listen. Yeah. And it's like, that was the one thing I really felt like when I was coming into um, my degree and like getting into it, even after years of having studied it, I still felt like um, that was the one question that I didn't know how to answer. And I didn't know how to have that conversation effectively and appropriately, which was mm-hmm. like, um, how do we like approach feminism outside of the US and outside of Europe, outside of, of the global North or like the Western world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always knew that it was not the values that we had here and the values that we have in the West are so different than the values that exist in the global South and in um, developing nations, of course. But I never knew, like, I, I was very much so still stuck in like, no, there is a right and a wrong though. Yeah. Right. Like when it really comes down to it and that's like a very universalist perspective mm-hmm. um which isn't necessarily wrong it's not ill-intentioned right um, because a lot of people think that right like a lot of people think um that like values a certain set of values or a certain set of rights just should exist everywhere and um which like to a certain extent might be true but then when you consider like cultural nuance and um exactly just a different lived experience i don't i don't can there be anything that's applied as universal well to a certain extent so it was uh chandra mohanty she's a um feminist philosopher feminist theorist and she basically says that like um some feminism will ultimately rely on universalism because not all women can agree on what feminism includes mm. and so by nature of feminism or by nature of the only thing all women share is um, existing under uh, patriarchy, um, that because of that, the universalism will exist in the elimination of that patriarchy. So like there will be some of that. Um, Mm. But uh, Letty Volp is another theorist and she talks about like this universe, this idea of universalism versus um, cultural relativism. And she essentially kind of talks about how both aren't, um, both aren't great because they both, while universalism is good on the surface, when you really dive into it, it's not great. Um, And cultural relativism is good when you dive in, but it still presents some issues. Um, Can you do a combination of the both? Like, is that the proper way to to proceed that's i mean some again like theorists don't know like theorists don't agree it's it's all like some things might work but like you and i were talking about it earlier which is just that like because there is no centralized concept of what feminism should be and because um feminism becomes intersectional like when we realize that each woman's life is going to have different priorities and different needs that all we ultimately have is like what different theorists believe will get us there 
yeah. which is nuanced and layered. And like, you know, like I said, when you and I were talking earlier, it was like, right. So then like this can happen, but then you have to take into account that like, you know, who is that, you know, if, if we say like every woman should have the right to education, mm-hmm. right. Um, because education provides her with the foundation that she needs to exist as an autonomous be as an autonomous person yeah. in a society, then you have to question like, but well, what kind of education is that getting and who, who deems what is acceptable education and what's appropriate education, you know? So it's like, yeah. and then you have to ask like, is it appropriate if it's coming from that culture? But then you have to ask who is in charge of the narrative within that culture, because if it's this right. white men, then that might not be the best education for non cis white men receiving it. Yes. So it's like, it's very, very nuanced. So it's like you, you can fight to have access to education, but then you have to further delve into what kind of education that is, that is who's providing it, what's the curriculum, what's the content. Totally. Because like, I know like our education system isn't well-rounded at all, which is what this exactly. question was talking about a little bit. Like U.S. history is taught nearly universal, but like I, I know next to nothing about any country other than... Um, the u.s and in england and yeah those white guys exactly um and so that becomes an issue because like with colonialism the british government imposed an education system on um on india and on indian citizens um just the same as americans imposed an education system on native americans and tried to americanize them so it's like you have to ask yourself like who is in who is at the forefront of these narratives and so it's like if education is being provided what kind of education are they getting and who deems that appropriate or not right and then you have to analyze like whether like the overall goal is to really liberate or if it falls into like what's talked about like the white man's burden which i know we've talked about on here before totally um and the and i think the interesting thing is is that like there's a beauty in that like um in that intersectional aspect of it in that every woman is going to have different needs and different priorities and so because of that their feminism should be shaped based off of those things mm-hmm. um that is that like and then and then there's a difficulty right because it's like in the 60s with the women's liberation movement in the u.s um it was on the verge of being more intersectional than the previous wave mm-hmm. um but it wasn't nearly um as intersectional as it needed to be yeah um but a big um a big uh tenant of that movement was the whole the phrase that the personal is political that Mm. like what is what is discussed in private and like private issues are political like abortion like domestic violence um you know like contraception in general because all those things are like trickle down effects of living in a patriarchy exactly white supremacist capitalist patriarchy exactly and like especially yeah especially with sex education like i'm very very passionate about that but in uh a piece um who i don't know the author of but i we, we will post it it's about western feminism and the asian experience 
the author talks about how bringing what should be private into a, into a public sphere would bring shame on a woman's family. Mm. And so, but then at the same time, um, consciousness raising was, which was a huge, it was likely the catalyst for the women's liberation movement in the U S mm. was adopted from Asian feminism. Mm. So it's like, there is the intersectionality of feminism is, is both, um, it, it, it just as everything within it needs to be adjusted to each woman. Yeah. Um, feminism adjusts to the intersectionality of each place. Should. And yeah. I feel like the, I feel like activists and leaders in, um, Western societies need to let go of that need to control all totally. liberation. Totally. And, and that's not saying that they should get rid of um, responsibility because it is the responsibility of those who are privileged to, to, you know, reallocate power where, where it can be. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what it is. It's reallocating power. It's not saving. It's not projecting. Um, exactly. I know we were talking about um, earlier today, we were like, well, how do you make a difference if you don't want to be infringing on like other cultures rights and where, and, and you don't want to be pushing what you think is right in, in spaces that you don't know everything about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, what, what did we come down to? <laughs> we were talking about like, it's important to, we said education is a re- like reallocating funds, yeah. simply listening yeah well because you and i were talking about like which this this single fact um i mean i'll admit it i was very very um uneducated in feminism when i first started college and one of the biggest things that um or one of the things that shocked me the most was that um discussion around like how we started which was like how do you create a feminism that is good for all women um, and, and that works for every woman, um, and how, how in the U S do we use the privilege that we have to fight for women who cannot fight for themselves? Um, because of course, like that exists, but I think that there's a, um, there, there, there's a whole other issue when you, when you bring that in, because of course that, when I entered my journey into trying to understand a more intersectional and adopt a more intersectional feminism, um, I really struggled with trying to figure out and trying to educate myself as a white feminist, not like, you know, the, the um, like idea white feminist, but like as a yeah. like white person who is, who is um, uh, committed to feminism um living in a western developed country how to make that expand beyond um my lived experience um that really stumped me like i really didn't know because i wanted to use my privilege and i wanted to use the voice that i did have and like the platform that i did have Mm -hmm. to uplift other women's voices who didn't have that but then i was like but do I, but I don't know what's best for them. And I don't want to pretend like I do. Yeah. And it was Gloria Steinem talks about it. And then in my, one of my classes when in, in college, we talked about it, which is just that like 
we, the worst thing to do, the worst thing you can do as a feminist is try to assume that you know what is best for women who don't share your lived experience. Yeah. And so a lot of times like feminists and theorists will get asked, like, how do we address feminism or inequality in developing nations or in the global South or in countries that are not Eurocentric? Um, and like the best thing that they can say is like, you let them assert their own agency and trust that they are not the victims of their own oppression and that they have agency and they have autonomy um, and they will do what is best for their lived experience and for, and they will do what's best to overcome the oppression that they're experiencing. Yeah. Um, and I was like, oh my God, I mean, that sounds horrible, but that's where I was at. I was like, no, it doesn't sound horrible. Yeah. That, that makes sense. Well, I mean, the thing is, is that your, your feminism and your anti-racism and your allyship is going to be ever changing. But like, yeah. like you literally said earlier today, like nothing changes if nothing changes. So you have to be open to taking in criticism, to hearing other people, other perspectives and removing your own ego Mm-hmm. to look at the bigger picture um and that's just that's what you're doing and so the difference from how you you felt when you first went into that class versus where you're at now is remarkable and then in five years you'll look back at the difference between now and then and it'll be even more remarkable and it's like that's how it works and that's how actual change happens yeah and so i feel like in terms of um like this being on this this listener's twitter timeline um and seeing a lot of that it's like as as privileged western white people um you have to be willing to take a look at yourself in a way that's not always going to be in the best light yeah like if somebody's telling you that you they made you uncomfortable no matter what the topic is um you take a look at that like, it yep. does not matter what your intention was because if somebody felt uncomfortable, they felt that, then that happened. Yeah. And you made them feel uncomfortable. It doesn't matter what, what the intent was. It doesn't matter if you think it's silly or if you don't think it's valid. You, you need to it, – it's all about removing your ego in order mm-hmm. to be the best feminist, anti-racist ally that you can be. Yeah. And I think something that two, – two points. One is something that – that Gloria Steinem says often, um, which is that we can't change women to fit into the world. We need to change the world to fit women. Like we need, we yeah. can't change women to fit the structure. We can't change women to fit the patriarchy. We, need to change the we structure. have to change the structure to yeah. fit women. Um, and then the second thing, which I think is interesting, is like an interesting look at all of this, um, which goes into a concept that I know we've talked about before, which is. Um, I guess, um, Chao Ju Chen, who is a theorist, a feminist theorist, has talked about a standpoint theory, which is she believes that if you are at the top of a power structure, you only look around you. And so that's the experience that you are able to internalize and that you are able to see as Mm -hmm. um, valid and to um, recognize the existence of. Yeah. Whereas if you're at the bottom, you look up through the power structure. And so oftentimes people in less powerful positions can actually know more about the world than people in powerful positions. That makes sense. Um, and so that goes back to, I, like I said, we know we've talked about 
um, how actually some people believe that women and other marginalized groups would be the best people to have power in their hands because they are completely uncorrupted by what having power feels like. Yeah. So this is all to say, like, there is no answer of how we get here. I think, like, there or get there. There, I've been like conversations can happen, but like again, it's gonna be it's the solution is gonna be different. What feminism means and what feminism um, is intended to uh, address is going to be different. And it's like I know that it can be frustrating because the majority of major change needs to come from those in power. Um, Mm -hmm. but I still think it's a really important everyday practice and I have to do this and I struggle with this on a daily basis is that you need to remove your ego from these types of situations Mm -hmm. and really try to get a clear perspective and really try to look at yourself objectively Mm -hmm. and be okay with making mistakes and having said the wrong thing. God fucking knows that my activism and feminism has has not been perfect, is not perfect, will probably never be perfect, but it is ever-evolving. And as long as it is evolving and as long as your intention is to be... I'm saying the same shit, but, like, is again... But it's but it's worth repeating. But it's, like, as long as your overall intention is to be the best feminist, anti-racist ally person that you can be then you'll always be moving in the right direction but you but it you won't your ego will stifle you yeah like you're in a- yeah there has to be there has to be coupled with well-intentioned with good intentions has to be exactly what you said which yeah. is like you have to be able to take a really hard look at how you've contributed to the exact yeah. thing that you are now trying to dismantle even in recent um in 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 like very very recent times yeah and it's like if somebody says something to you and you find yourself immediately getting so defensive that's when you need to stop and take a step back like that was a big thing i learned in therapy just on an not even on a global like like activist skill like on an interpersonal level like i have a big problem with codependency and so anytime anybody would even so much as suggest that i was acting codependent i would get so angry it was like i just saw red i was like no that's not at all what it is like how dare you say that that's not even close to how i am and that's my biggest issue like i Mm -hmm. absolutely was and it was just because i did not want to see that because it's fucking hard to look at yourself for how you really are yeah. It's not fun all the time. Like you're not going to see it's like self-love is about seeing yourself where you fall short and acknowledging yep. that. It it's not about it's not about idealizing your negative attributes and and then being in denial of them. That's not self-love. That's fucking toxic. Totally. Yep. Not yeah. that I feel like that's straight from the point, but No, but that's that I mean, but who cares? It's still a valid point. But I mean, I feel like how do we get it in there? You have to do, you have <laughs> to do that like personal work in order to do important larger skill work. Totally. Like I think and it's it's exactly. all interconnected. And that's not to say like absolute like absolutely. And I know we've talked about this before on the pod, which is like we've gotten questions about activism and like how people feel like they want to do more they feel like they should be doing more but they just can't and that's exactly the point that we should make which is just that like in addressing this like ultimately what the person who asked this question was talking about all comes down to 
a lot of different factors, but um, how it gets passed on is through education. Yeah. And like, you know, not any one of us alone it has the power to do that, um, to change the entire education system in, uh, <laughs> yes. you know, whatever, whatever part of the world, um, or to stop colonialism or to like right. dismantle capitalism. Cause like ultimately those are the issues at the root of all of this. Yes. Um, but, um, it's exactly what you said, which is just that like, it's, we can... it's the removal of, of one's ego and the, well and, and the you know and moving forward and pursuing feminism with good intentions yeah. and like that makes it sound really fucking simplistic but but it's like that's how you get incremental change <sighs> totally and that and yeah. that's the game that we're in at the moment i think and i think too it's like um a lot of times when unfortunately like when we center um these discussions around culture like a lot of the issues that happen are that we center culture around like all of the issues in the yeah. world and i think i know we've talked about this before but marilyn fry has talked about a birdcage yeah. analogy which is just to say that like marginalized people women that exist in a birdcage and each um wire is any um individual oppression or or um, hurdle that they might face yeah. culture is just one of those things um there's that and there's also the fact that with like attributing this to culture with attributing this to only culture oftentimes like because it's coming from a white supremacist um and you and um uh western lens that makes it so that we don't see how cult our own culture has impacted yeah us negatively yeah exactly um, and like the goal isn't to push your choice onto women all over the world it's to give them the resources to make their own yes and like maybe this is i mean i that's why we've talked about this before which you and i stevie which is just that like ultimately feminism is comes down it does come down to choice yeah and i think with like um takes that argue against that it's just like with individual choice no individual choices is on is, is uninfluenced from, yeah um no individual choice exists in a vacuum so it's like you have to just that is why like every choice that we make is influenced by something else yeah it was it like earlier is. today you said that um like even Re rebelling against the beauty standards of the patriarchy is still being informed by the patriarchy exactly i just like anything i think choice feminism can go too far when women start making the choice totally. to act against their own interest exactly right but like yes. when i feel like people pick apart like how women choose to conform to beauty standards to as as like their like dig against choice feminism yeah. where it's like well if it's easier for somebody to survive and it's not acting against their own interests like what exactly and and like the bottom line is not like the choice right because if you want to argue about like what is influenced and what is actually conforming to the male gaze and what isn't like fine but ultimately it isn't about choice it's about access to equal opportunity of choice yes right like 
it's it's not about um it's not about whether you it's not about whether you choose to shave your legs or don't choose to shave your legs it's about it's about it's about having an equal opportunity to safety to self-expression um and etc yeah regardless of what choice you make yeah that's the goal that's it right um because something isn't a choice if it's going to have like if you have two two options and one of them has a negative a known negative consequence then that's not really a choice that you have exactly and so when it comes to like other parts of the world and other countries um that's the focus not not pushing how you think women should be liberated how you think life should be lived that's not it it's about it's about providing equal opportunity for choice because i'm very much so a proponent of of like women women will not never truly be liberated until um we have control over our own bodies until we have bodily autonomy that is when that is the that is the catalyst for true liberation um here right Mm -hmm. like i would never subscribe that to um another woman's feminism yeah um especially if she's articulated what that feminism needs to look like for her Mm -hmm. um and i know we talked about it earlier as well which is just that like there was a case oftentimes things like this when feminism is when people attempt to globalize feminism um like with un efforts and things like that they often result in having more damaging effects than beneficial yeah ones where I know I studied something in college that was essentially a woman, a a community of women who were relied on fishing and all they needed was refrigerators to, um, to maintain the longevity of their livelihood. Right. But the UN sent in women's organizations and relief um, teams and all of that and they were building them state-of-the-art facilities to like make everything easier and to make the sorting process easier and to make fishing easier thinking that they were helping them when in reality they were doing things and creating things that they wouldn't be able to sustain anyways once they left yeah um and not listening to them in helping them um guide what would have actually been beneficial to them mm-hmm. so it, it's i mean a lot of it comes down to listening which I feel like is something that you have to work on personally immensely because I mean, I I was just thinking about like how so many of one's personal issues that you think are just unique to your lived experience are actually effects of living in a white supremacist capitalistic patriarchy. Yep. Like, down to my daddy issues like those (laughs) like the system that created that that those like the system that that creates environments for those kind of traumas and personal um events to unfold like it it all is on a larger scale so by doing personal work you are doing it it, it, I, i think that that's activism i do too yeah and i think too like another big issue that results in this which is is like social media has been imperative or has been crucial to um to uh activism 
um, a lot of the time. Yeah. And, but at the same time, it's definitely bred a generation and a culture where we don't do our own research. And if we see something that's like popular opinion, we tend to just hop on that. And that's really damaging for trying to work towards a feminism that is intersectional. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, Because a really big obstacle. Yeah. And like this listener who sent in this question, it's like, I have seen exactly what you're talking about, where it's like, people don't want to do the work that they are not educated about through their school or through a cause that they're passionate about. And so a lot of the times that's why like things that happen here in the U S get so much more coverage and are spread far wider. Yeah. What sentence? Yeah. (laughs) Um, Than issues in like the global South or in developing countries, because that requires a lot more work. And like everything on social media is supposed to be like easy because it is like you click two buttons and like you've shared something and and you have an opinion. Yeah. And you have an opinion. And all of a sudden, like you put something on your story and, and boom, you're an activist. Right. And that's, that's incredible. And the scale on which that's impactful is immeasurable. Yeah. In terms of like, you are educated. Yeah. Like in terms of information distribution, it's like astronomical, but yeah, and we say think- we say educated in turn in meaning like, um, not in terms of like academia or like no, no, whatever no. level degree you have. We say educated in terms of like, um, uh, array of knowledge. Yeah, or just like taking an interest in things that are happening outside exactly. of your own personal world, um, if you're capable. You know, it's like it, it's we've talked about this before. I know it's like about doing what you're what you're capable of because if you're not taking care of yourself none of it matters because if you're not able to function then you're not gonna be able to do anything so obviously that's something to consider but like i find that i see a lot of privileged people in my sphere using that as an excuse to not do anything exactly ultimately it comes down to white europeans white americans white people um, who are at the center and at the top of the power structure. Yeah. Um, changing the way that they uh, involve themselves in activism. Exactly. And, and, it, and again, it comes down to looking at yourself realistically because um, you might, I, I'm not rich by any means. Like I, I certainly struggle financially and, and, and being financially independent, living on my own as a 22 year old in the city. Like, you know, like it's not, I've never been very well off with money, but I'm, I can look at my situation realistically enough to go like, you know what I get, I, I get coffee enough times a week or I order delivery enough times a week that I can allocate some of that money to other organizations. Mm-hmm. You know, like I can take $5 out of my week. If I'm getting coffee three times a week, I can eliminate one of those and reallocate $5 a week or something like that. And it's totally. like, and you don't always want to admit that because you don't want to do things that are out of like what your realm of comfort is. You're like, well, but I they, like doing these have, things. I don't want to sacrifice and, anything. And they have no immediate or tangible um return. yeah exactly like you don't get the joy of of sipping on a sweet iced chai <laughs> right away you know by sending five dollars yeah. you don't always know what like that that assistance is 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 small and not measurable in the immediate sense that we're so used to receiving 
which again goes back to like how we are socialized yeah which is like change is hard change is like a lot of the times incremental we digress <laughs> we digress this is clearly a broad issue and like thank you for sending this to us because we've been talking about it all day yeah like seriously. i was worried we wouldn't have anything else to add here because it's just all we've been talking about all day i know and now we're i feel like we could go on for hours and not get anywhere but it's like just being aware of i, I think it ultimately comes down to um I think it really comes down to just to taking care of your fucking ego and removing that from really every aspect of your life, but specifically your activism um, and being open to listening to perspectives other than your own. Mm -hmm. I agree. And um, Twitter is a whole where toxic behavior festers. So that's, I'm sure it's understandable if you feel like all you see is white feminism on there. Yep. I mean, social media in general. Yeah. I would just say um, a call to um, white people um, is to educate yourself outside of the traditional history um, that you've been taught, that we've been taught. Mm -hmm. And I would say educate yourself, re-educate yourself on what you've been taught. Yeah. What we've been taught because that is completely obscured by um has been completely obscured by the white man exactly so again what stevie said just removing your ego and recognizing that your agency isn't greater or superior than any other woman's agency Mm -hmm. um and taking a step back and placing and just recognizing the fact that that the only thing that all women share is oppression under patriarchy and let that be what drives you forward i think that's a perfect note to end it on and listen yes and listen and it's like if you have the resources to listen to this podcast you have the resources to listen to audiobooks about um various topics that you feel like you weren't educated on properly in your education and you have access to the internet and all those lovely things so put it to good use i'm really trying to um up my reading <laughs> It's hard, like, be gentle with yourself, like, and do what you can, obviously, but make a conscious effort. Absolutely. I can literally post my, the, uh, not the syllabus, what's the, the reading list. Oh, yeah. For uh, the global feminisms class that I took. That would be amazing. Um, And there, we went through Asian feminism, we went through African feminism, Latin American feminism, general um, feminism in through the lens of globalization and capitalism and colonialism and I think that was everything so I can literally cool. we can we can post that list um, I believe most of the sources are available online in PDF version um, okay. as well that's amazing um, and if one isn't and you'd be interested in reading it just DM us and I can definitely um, take pictures for you and send them to you or upload them somewhere or that's amazing whatever that's so awesome and if you don't um, follow us on social media we are um, the sex files pod on instagram twitter and tumblr um, and that is where you can reach us obviously through curious cat but when it is anonymous it's hard to get back to you um, personally if you're if you're looking for a response so yes a core principle of your education needs to be reading 
and um, reading and taking in and listening to people with the lived experience that you are reading yes. and learning about. Um, Meaning so, that you can't just listen to this episode and call it a day because we're exactly, both white as fuck. So. Exactly. So um, let the people who are experiencing what they're experiencing um, tell their own stories. Yeah. But also and don't... seek those out. Seek those out in... in uh, there's so many different levels to it. But seek that, <laughs> seek that out in... Um, on, on mediums that it's already being presented. Like, don't text your friends yes. from other countries and being like, can you tell me what your experience is like? Because it's not their fucking yes. job. That is not their work to do. But if people are putting out content, which there are, again, yes. I would like to introduce you to the internet. <laughs> you can find people who are, who are sharing those stories and, and, and read up on that. Absolutely. And like I said, we, could, we will post... This yeah, is a great starting point because this was a complete, compre- not comprehensive, but a, a well-rounded course that was meant to have a starting point and an ending point and be a general sort of, yeah. um, what's, what's the At word? At least introduction like, to- Introduction to this global topic, feminism. yes. That's really interesting. So while Emily was doing that in college, I was um, <laughs> running around trying to move my body through molasses in the air. Um, who do you think so got more under education? Shut up. Shut I'm, up. I'm joking. Come on, let me make fun of my weird acting education. No. Oh, come on. It is. I'm just joking. I don't actually think that I'm, like, dumb because I got an acting degree. It's just funny when you get to have these conversations and I'm like, yeah, but can you move at a one? No, but I can't. <laughs> That's the thing. <laughs> I can't. And that's why if I were to ever try to um indulge in acting i would speak to you and i would listen to your experience we are living examples and i would not try to pretend like i know what is best for your acting career you'll be giving speeches and panels talking about these important issues and i'll be in the back like can you tell that my character's leading with her pelvis because she has like a lot of like familial trauma and that second chakra so i'm trying to lead from there can you tell that by the way that i'm and i would and i would I would. And then I would say, everyone stream my friend's movie. (laughs) Should we get into the episode? Let's get into the episode. I know I say this often, but I actually am apologizing for my voice today because I drank a lot yesterday and I'm very tired. (laughs) If anything, you're right. Actually, it's good that you apologize because I'm sure all the girls who are in love with you who listen to this are just losing their minds over your raspy, low, perfect voice. No. (laughs) Okay, so this is um, season three. This is like some episode. It's like episode eight, I think, <laughs> or nine. Season three, some episodes. Well, it's an episode, um, and it's called. I already forgot how to say. Oubliette. 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 Oub. 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 This is oub. Uh, in French, it refers to a dungeon where the trapdoor is in the ceiling. And it's the only way out. Mm. Four out of ten title. <laughs> <laughs> so we open on Valley Woods High School in Seattle, Washington. And we're not going to talk about the details of the scene. Because yeah. um, despite this season, we realize like this season is kind of hit after hit, right? Yeah. You have Clyde Buck- Bruckman's whatever. <laughs> 
you last have, response. <laughs> <laughs> you have Quagmire. You have Wet Wired. You Ooh. have Pusher. Pusher. Um, club. Another club. <laughs> <laughs> that is the equivalent of this season, right? But yeah, then you yeah. have some real stinkers like this one. It's like the introduction of the show's obsession with like the male psyche, like the tortured male Ugh. psyche, um, specifically the part that preys on women and girls. Apparently, yeah. they just um, think it's so interesting, right? It's like there was a documentary. I think I, I don't know if I said this on the podcast. I've talked to a lot of people about this because it made me angry. I think one of my biggest issues. Here we go. <laughs> Let's go. I think one of my biggest flaws, well, I don't see it as a flaw, flaws. but my family sees it as a flaw. I, I am like, my middle name is, um, I, I ruin days. I ruin events. She's a I life ruin ruiner. moments. I'm a life ruiner because we go out places or we'll be watching something and I can't help but call out things that bother me or upset me. And to some people that kills them. <laughs> No, I think that is actually one of your most incredible qualities. <laughs> Anyways, um, I was watching a documentary with um, my family about Tiger Woods. And there was a part where it was like after he had cheated on his wife, after that was like that had just been announced. But then there was a part where he, he played golf, I guess. He played in a tournament like a day after that came out. Like a week after that came out, and the announcers were like, "He's like, you know, doing a stroke or whatever." And he's and the announcers don't. The announcers were like, "You know, you just want to know what's going on inside of his head. He's been through so much. You just want to get into the head of a guy like that." And I was like, "No." No, what is this obsession with like men doing shitty things and making mistakes that fuck up other people's lives? Usually women, women, yeah. Yeah. And then like other men being like, "Oh, he's so complex." Yeah. No, he's just a bad person. <laughs> well, it's like it's such a privilege to be interested by things like that. Totally. Like that is the epitome of that type of privilege it reminds me of like the scene in the fall where stella gibson's talking to the little elf boy i don't know what his name is the one that she fucked at the end with the curly hair spoiler alert <laughs> I don't... you know what i'm talking about he plays yeah. a wizard or something in another show oh does he yeah i don't know but um she's talking to him and he's like He's trying to psychoanalyze her and be like, oh, well, you said I reminded you of Spectre. That's the killer. Um, like, and, like, he's like, yeah, I mean, a guy like that's fascinating. Like, of course, like, I would, like, understand that. And she's like, yeah, you might find him fascinating, but I just find him repulsive. Because yeah. it's like, because it th threatens her existence. You're not going to find that interesting. You're going to want to rid that. Exactly. Rid that. <laughs> Good point. Yeah, rid it. <laughs> Anyways. Carl, it's picture day. <laughs> <laughs> Carl, the photographer's assistant, is clearly a pedophile. Why he's working in a school, I don't know. Why I, I, my, his boss hasn't fired him. 
I also don't have the answer to that. He does, his boss does take the time to yell at him and tell him that he's not good at his job, but he doesn't notice the leering at, at underage girls. Well, it's like, I feel like anyone working around children to any capacity should go through a very thorough psychiatric evaluation. Literally. Yeah, true. But nobody cares about people's safety. So. There's nothing like the boys club, baby. We cut to one of the girls' homes who was at the school, uh, Amy. Her and her sister are sleeping in the room. Carl um, breaks into their house through the window in her bedroom and kidnaps her. We cut to a diner. Lucy works there. She Her nose starts bleeding and she passes out. And the connection between these two scenes is that as she's on the floor, she begins murmuring over and over the same thing that Carl just said to Amy when he abducted her, which was, nobody's going to spoil us. This is just another episode where the X-Files takes normal facets of trauma and tries to make it supernatural. Like, to a T, almost. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So the credits roll, and we're at the crime scene the next day with just Mulder, which, which was disappointing, to say the least. Yeah. Uh, because Scully's not there, the only woman at the crime scene is a victim. It's Amy's mother. <laughs> yeah. He, Mulder tells uh, Amy's mother that he knows how she feels, and of course, she says, how could you? I definitely, I don't think that saying... I know how you feel is ever the right way to help someone grieve or cope because even if you've been through the exact same thing, like the exact same thing, two people deal with the same situation in two completely different ways. Exactly. Um, well, and, well, it's like you might have an idea of what she's going through. Like you maybe witnessed similar things with your mother, but like him losing his sister is a very different trauma than a mother losing her daughter. Like it's not even the same situation. It Like e- either way it would be wrong, but like. That's the thing. It's like, there's this very dramatic shot of Mulder once he, once the mother leaves that he's like, oh, he's so tortured and hurt that she wasn't willing to let him equate him losing his sister at the age of eight to aliens to a mother whose daughter was just violently abducted by a man out of her own bedroom that she shared with her sister who saw him do it. It's like, I understand that he might identify with Amy's sister. Totally. Being like, yeah, I saw my sister taken and it really fucked me up. Like I, and like having an empathy and using that empathy to motivate you to solve the case. He instead uses that like identification that he has with the case to motivate his further internal exploration. It's like, babe, that's got to happen in like therapy. You can't be like co-opting other people's traumas to learn about yourself when people's literal lives are at stake. So I'm not suggesting like one is more traumatic than the other, but the coping and healing and grieving process will be. Yeah. It will be very, very different. And even if they aren't different, it's pretty entitled of Mulder to try to insert himself here, even if he was well-intentioned, which I believe he was. Yeah. In conclusion, Scully is a much better empathizer with people and Mulder is just so lost in his pain that he's unable to adequately share grief with other people. Oh, that's the perfect way to put it. It's like he doesn't empathize, he co-ops. Exactly. So Mulder notices blood on the floor from Amy's nosebleed. 
Walt Eubanks walks in at the same time and he introduces himself. He says that they have no leads aside from one that Mulder's interested in. He tells him that there's a woman at a, at, there was a woman at the diner um, who is now at the hospital and Mulder's, Mulder goes to talk to her. So it's really funny because when he's taught, when uh, Mulder's talking to this officer, you can see the difference in David's pupils so clearly. I know. And even though it's a David thing, it now by nature of him sharing a face is a Mulder thing. Yeah. And I have a couple of scenarios for you. <gasps> oh my God. Yeah. Okay. So I really like to imagine Scully like laying in bed with him and just like laying like he's on his back she's on her stomach and she's like laying looking at him and her like noticing the difference and just kind of like running her fingers over his like eyelids and his cheeks and telling him how pretty she thinks it is and that like mm -hmm. if that affects how he sees she would know better but if that affects how he sees that one her one side is better anyways that's so sweet um, or Scully would tell him that she likes them because each of them are unique. So it's like looking at two different snowflakes. Because mm. in my head, Mulder's irrationally insecure about certain things. Yeah. So because he should be allowed to be. Yeah. Um, it's okay for men to be openly insecure about things. Exactly. And I also like to imagine that Scully's favorite thing is seeing the difference in how they dilate when she does something that gives them goosebumps. So we're at the hospital and speaking of our sweet angel, Scully shows up. I showed Stevie a picture. Her jacket <laughs> is giant. You were like, so right. She huge. looks like a football player. Like she looks like a linebacker. Like her her earlier stuff was big, but it was like a look. You know, it was like the oversized look. Yeah, this, this is, is it. just giant and does not fit her. It's so in funny. any even in an oversized capacity. It, it's like triple shoulder no. pads. So her flight was delayed, which I don't know why that detail was included. They're just like so no one bitches about her not being in the first scene. Her flight was delayed, okay? I'm still going to bitch about it. Yeah, me too. Um, and it's so strange to me because seeing Scully's, seeing Scully be in the room when that happened between Mulder and the mother would have been interesting. I know. I think so. So I don't know why. Anyways. Um, well, this episode is very clearly not interested in what Scully has to say or think about anything that happens in this. It's not at all interested in exploring her perspective, which is ironic because like, she, her interactions would have been informed not only by her own fucking abduction, but like her already present fear of this happening simply because she's a woman and that's what's been instilled in her her whole life. Like it would be so interesting. Like how dumb to just yes. ignore that. I don't understand. Yeah. So Mulder tells her whether or not uh, she knew it that Lucy was saying the exact same words at the exact same time as Amy's abductor 20 miles across town and this one is is too much for Scully and this is the only time she's been stumped and she thinks it's pretty spooky that that happened so we find out that Lucy was kidnapped when she was eight years old 
Mulder says that she was missing for five years until she escaped and they never caught her kidnapper. Mulder and Scully go to talk to her and Mulder's asking Lucy if um, nobody's going to spoil us means anything to her. She says no. This is the shot, besties. This is the shot that I have Uh-oh. been... I have been leading this, my whole life has been leading up to this moment, sharing this moment with you of this shot in this episode. Maybe my favorite shot of Scully in the entire series. And I know I say that for like every episode, but like really this is the one. I think about this still all the time. Pain is the picture. I love it. I love it so much. I didn't, I, you want to know how much I love it? I didn't even paint a picture. I just literally wrote her a love letter. (laughs) Oh, are you going to share it? Would you like me to? I mean, I would. Okay. It is pride month. So it is pride month. And today is the biggest day of pride in New York that we're recording this. So I guess I'll share it. It's your day. Okay. It's my day. This love letter really has nothing to do with this still specifically. It's just, I love this still so much. This is what came out Okay. when I tried to explain, when I tried to write something. Sounds good. I said, her face is so strong when she's serious and when she's concentrating. And then as soon as she cracks, her face like softens and it's like the biggest difference ever. And her face is very concentrating here in this uh-huh. still. Okay. So, um, I guess it's, okay, yeah, I guess it's kind of a description. Okay, I said her lips are so pillowy. It's like, you know, when, should I keep going? I can't even hear it, so. Wait, look out the window, see if there's people marching or anything. Yeah! Oh my god! I know! Yeah. Come on, Bessie. I'm coming, I can put pants on! Sorry, the Pride Parade went by our street. And now I'm eating a piece of salt water taffy. Mmm. My love letter to Dana Scully. Oh, yes. I'm going to describe her lips. You know, when you uh, come home from a long day and you just, like, sink into your bed and, like, your pillows, they just, like, surround your head and neck in the most supportive way. Yeah. Dana Scully feels like going to bed at like 8 p.m. in a bed with freshly washed sheets. Oh, That's what her love feels like. Anyways, this was for her lips. Okay, so image of coming home, right? Okay. Laying yes. in bed. Her lips are pillowy like that in the way that like you, they just look like they would completely surround you and consume you and make you feel so safe that's the sweetest description i've maybe ever heard okay ready for this one yeah two more okay okay thank you for thank you for indulging me i know it's fried these will stop in july no they don't need they won't they won't don't don't, don't ever stop no they won't okay so she radiates like a love that simultaneously makes you fall to your knees and also ready to walk across the world with her. Happy Valentine's Day, Dana Scully. Anyways, <laughs> last one. Oh. 
Okay, last one. You know, like when you see a really beautiful, I really like how I tell these, like as if I'm doing a stand up bit. Okay. No, I love it. Like when you see a really beautiful painting and it's like acrylic paint. So it's like texture. And it's also um, because you can like mix acrylics and like they kind of still keep their um, color without totally just like mixing. Like we're watercolors. If you mix one over the other, like they just become consumed. Whatever. With acrylics, it's like you can kind of create like a lot of texture and pattern through how um, through how the color itself stays of each paint. So like even yeah. if you're layering, like you can still see the layers of colors. Right. It doesn't just like mix unless you really mix it together. Yes. That was too elaborate. But like, you know, just all of like the thick acrylics, the mix of colors that like form something that's visual and familiar. Yes. That is like, that is her face and her beauty. It's, it's, it, it's, it makes you want to like trace every feature so gently, like you would like a painting with like acrylic paint and just appreciate it so gently, but gently enough so that you don't alter anything about it. You should write a poetry book that's just your descriptions of Dana Scully. An, an ode to Dana Scully? Yeah. I mean, if you wanted to make it broad, like marketing strategies, right? It could just be owed to women mm-hmm. um, or owed to a woman. But and nobody knows who it's about, but people would just like, it's so beautiful. But we would know. And then my know. true fans would know who it is about. We at the Sex Files <laughs> would know. I like that idea. Anyways, that's it. So Lucy is, yeah, we're back. We're in a hospital. Sorry. We're in a hospital <laughs> with Mulder and Scully and Lucy. And Lucy is rightly triggered by being in a small space. She says she doesn't have any answers for them. So they leave and she gets, and Lucy gets ready to leave the hospital. So Scully makes a joke before her and Mulder leave that she guesses Lucy quote, isn't too big on confined spaces. And I hate that they would have her dismiss her trauma like that. As if Scully wouldn't have a handful of triggers that would make day-to-day life difficult for her as well. Exactly. Yeah. Um, But then I remember that the writers don't think trauma has any impact beyond immediate shock to body and mind. And so Scully was just able to move on without any remnants of her trauma. Yeah. But then I remembered she experiences triggers that we've seen, like an irresistible when she sees like unidentifiable faces in her abductor. Yeah. And then I remember that there's no use in using up any brain juice to rationalize why such a traumatized and but also thoughtful and very empathetic character would say something so insensitive and that this was just bad writing it that's all it is like there's literally nowhere to go with that it's it's just bad writing it's just not considering her history and it's focused on Mulder so we cut to Carl on the side of the road a tow truck comes up and tries to help him change his tire because he has a flat and then Carl just loses his mind and threatens him with a crowbar. So obviously he leaves. So back at the police station, Scully makes the discovery that Lucy's blood type is O positive. Um, and I saw this scene made me think of something that I saw on Tumblr a while ago. There's this account that does um, incorrect X-Files quotes. And um, they did one where it was like Mulder is bleeding out. 
and Scully was like trying to help him and she was like Mulder what's your type and he just starts freaking out and he's like um redheads short <laughs> and smart and strong and blue eyes <laughs> she's like Mulder your blood type anyway <laughs> that's really cute Scully says they lifted two blood types off Lucy's clothes, O positive and B positive. The latter is obviously Amy's blood type, of course. Right. And Scully thinks she's a, that Lucy's a suspect, but Mulder doesn't. So in the next scene, it becomes clear that Lucy is seeing through Amy's eyes. We see Lucy in bed shivering. She has scratches on her face. She says it's dark in the room that she can't see despite her eyes being open in a lit room. And then we cut to Amy in a dark room with those same scratches on her face. And so that's when that becomes clear. This whole part led me to say it's becoming pretty obvious at this point that the episode is just playing on one woman's trauma through the traumatization of another young girl, which we've said this multiple times, but it's like, doesn't make for a great X-File. So at this point, I was like, I can't wait to see how they spin this one into a supernatural phenomena. And then um, a review summed it up really well, which is like, if you want to look at the positive side of the impact of this episode or the message of this episode, you could say that the story builds on the idea that horrific crimes leave very lasting consequences and that women often have to live with the scars inflicted by men. And they went on to say more broadly, it's an episode about our relationship with history, the idea that the past cannot ever be escaped and that violence and pain tend to linger on years after they are initially inflicted, which is great. Those are all great things to tackle. But I think it gives this episode way too much credit because ultimately what this episode yeah. is saying is that women are not more than their trauma. I agree. And that it will remain with them forever unless there is some sort of sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And like no one wants to be subjected to this message. So Mulder, it, it's one of those things where it's like no one wants to see this because people who have experienced trauma already know that quote. They already know that it's very, very difficult to escape the past or that it cannot ever be escaped or that violence and pain tend to linger for years. Like people who have been traumatized know that. So it's like, this feels like a case study of four people, of people who have been traumatized, four people who haven't to be like, yeah. see, you never really escape your trauma. When it's like, those aren't the stories you should be telling. The stories you should be telling are the ones for the survivors saying that exactly. you can move on and you can escape what has happened to you in the past or maybe not escape from it but you can heal and move on and heal and live from that point yeah and i feel like it's even more like disgusting to watch because it's all to serve molder's personal development exactly it's not even really about these girls so Mulder goes to Lucy's apartment and he takes her to dinner to talk. He tries to convince her to tell him what's going on with her while she's eating soup so aggressively, which I didn't even know was possible. So Mulder fails to convince her to help after telling her she's Amy's, quote, best hope, to which Lucy says rightly, then Amy's in a lot more trouble than you think. 
mm-hmm. um, which is very fair. And I don't understand why this woman who is clearly traumatized is being forced to do the work of the FBI. Like, why is she being convinced to undergo and submit to the painful memories of her own abduction when the FBI could just do their job and find Amy? Literally. That was my biggest note throughout this whole episode. And it's especially clear here when Amy's like, I don't want to talk to you. And Mulder's, and, and Amy says, you know, then, she, then Amy, then Lucy says, then Amy's in a lot more danger than you think. And Mulder's like, mm, now I have to go try to figure it out myself. Yeah. It's very much so a look of like, oh, this was going to be so easy. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then like, at this point I was like, isn't Carl not showing up to work anymore? Like, why don't they figure out that he was employed by a school where he was frequently around young girls? Then you just look at the most recent schools he went to and you see if Amy attended one. Yeah. Like this isn't casework. It's being, being on the, being an FBI agent is so easy. Leave (laughs) this poor woman alone. I know. But thankfully, in the next step, in the next scene, Scully does exactly what I outlined, and like, there you go, case solved. Yeah, but, and also proof that Scully and I are meant to be together because who wouldn't want to see these two girl bosses win? You know? Yeah. But like, and at the beginning, at the beginning of that scene, the way that the the medic who's cleaning her up is talking about is is basically just like really talking down to her because she like must have been in the hole again for a while or like he said went into the rabbit hole or something meaning that she relapsed and i really don't like that the law enforcement and medics treat her like absolute garbage for becoming an addict when it's their fault like just because like exactly what you were saying like the justice system fails victims constantly and so, like, if this justice system was one that supported victims, she would have had the resources to heal and move on. But she's literally just trying to survive and cope and cope in a system that doesn't and has never had her best interest in mind. So yeah. when she ends up addicted to, like, drugs to help numb herself because she has no resources to actually heal, like, yeah, like, the, this, like, Mulder, you're at fault for that. The system that you work for is at fault for that. And him just trying to, like, use her to further his investigation without doing any actual work is so ridiculous and then he's made out as the hero in the end and it's like what well and the irony too is that even the way that they that law enforcement um uh pick up amy at the end at the very end after she's just been drowned unconscious they literally just pick her up like she's a suspect after she's probably after she's just been unconscious for moments yeah it's like that's just I think it's just poor direction and poor writing, yeah. but accurate. Yeah. <laughs> Although Amy was a small white girl from probably like a middle middle class family. So I take that back. They probably would have realistically treated her a lot differently than they treated Lucy. Yeah. So Mulder showing Scully a video of Lucy from the week she was found He says that she was cognitively underdeveloped and hypersensitive to light. He says it's amazing that she got anywhere in life. And then Scully, as if she's meant to be like some anti-woman, petty, revenge, thirsty woman, um, says by Alana's standards, she hasn't gotten anywhere in life. We're just going to move on from that. Um, Scully gets the guy's name. She says that she can gather that he spent the good part of the last 15 years in institu- 
the good part of the last 15 years institutionalized for bipolar condition and then she has a picture of him and Mulder says that he's going to go show it to Amy's sister and or Mulder says that they should show it to Amy's sister and Mulder says he's going to go show it to Lucy. Mm -hmm. There's a couple of really terrifying and unnecessary sequences of Amy in um, the basement of Carl's house which we're not going to shed any light on. Just know that these scenes end with the fact that she may potentially have found a way out yeah. um, and an escape. We cut to Lucy. Mulder, this whole scene is one giant train wreck. God, I know. Um, they try to parallel the scene between Mulder and Lucy to the scene that's, go that's cutting in between, between um, Carl and Amy for a brief Disgusting. moment. But I also don't want to credit this show for having that wherewithal to present that message. <laughs> so it's definitely not in any thoughtful way. It's just like, ooh, wouldn't that be fun? Like a fun little parallel. It's just a parallel Lucy and Amy, but not not thinking about the unconscious parallel that it has between Mulder and Carl, yeah. which is the palpable one. So Mulder shows up uninvited to Lucy's restaurant. She says she doesn't want to talk to him. Mulder then proceeds to chase her. Yeah. Then grab her. And this is all made worse by the fact that he's there to show her a picture of her possible abuser that will likely trigger her even more. Yeah. Well, he even, like, grabs her and she um, looks at him and is like, don't touch me. Like, I don't like to be touched. And I, I do... It's fucked that he's even there asking her questions, but if we're here, I like seeing a woman forcefully set her boundaries with him about touching and like see him realize and respect it and like see him be like, oh yeah, that would be upsetting considering what you have possibly like the, what you've gone through. Um, I just don't like that it has to be a victim of extreme abuse for the boundaries to be respected, but you know, here we are. It's just the insensitivity in this scene is really ugly. <laughs> Yeah. It was really gross to watch because at the end of the day, it's just this episode was written, Mulder and Scully were written so carelessly in this episode. Yeah. Oh my God. And so a lot of like the grievances that we have are not even worth articulating because it's like they are just, I start so to out say of character. It. Yeah. I start to say it and you realize how ridiculous it is, but it's like yeah. Mulder deals with traumatized people on a daily basis that's part of his job. Yeah. And so, and I also just know that Mulder is a gentle man because I know that he has, we've seen him have kindness. We've seen him have compassion. Yeah. And despite the fact that what he's, despite what he experienced as a child and the lack of love that he experienced as a child, that is the one thing about him is that he is gentle and full of love despite what he experienced yeah. as a child. Exactly. And then there's the thing on top of that, which is like the subtle comparison of this woman to uh, Samantha. Yep. Of Lucy to Samantha. So it's like meaning he would be even more gentle with her. So yep. this episode is all out of exactly. whack. We cut back to Amy and she's running through the forest. She did manage to escape, but he catches up, Carl catches up to her and she gets taken again. Lucy decides that she wants to talk to Mulder and we find out that the man who took Amy is in fact the same man who took her 
Mulder gives her the chance to just talk about what she's experiencing. And I thought that that was one good writing choice, but it shouldn't have had to be after she said no multiple times, which kind of cancels out this good bit. Scully is nowhere to be seen. And this goes back to what you said in the beginning, which is just so unfortunate that from a storytelling perspective that she wasn't the main focus of this or she wasn't the connection to this case. She wasn't the one who had the connection to the case, that it was Mulder. Right. Because, um, first of all, there are so many episodes where this would have worked better. The writers take every chance that they get to insert Mulder um, into storylines through his sister and the trauma that's there. And yet we very rarely see that happen for Scully. It's usually like through the trauma, through a new traumatization or through a recurring traumatization. Like it's never just after the fact. Yeah. Which we know the whole series is Mulder on is working through and healing from his trauma while Scully is just traumatized over and over again for any like subtle reflection to be able to happen. That needs to happen to her again. You and I were talking before, after we watched the episode, and we were just saying that the reason it would be so much more fascinating as Scully's story is because it would have revealed so much about her. And it would have revealed so much about how her life experience would have caused her to question her strong-held beliefs. In the sense that, like, you know, I truly do think that if we got a chance to see Scully just wholeheartedly believe in Lucy because she is also a survivor despite the fact that the logistics and rational and rationale for how it would be happening would be so indefensible in her head. Yeah. And that would have revealed a lot about her character. So Lucy tells Mulder she feels like uh, her kidnapping is happening all over again. Then we see Mulder goes over to the window. We see Scully and the two other officers appear they're there to arrest lucy because somehow amy's blood was found all over lucy's uniform it's frustrating that they in this episode they seem to disregard the partnership that the show is literally founded on like it's like suddenly it becomes the molder show and that's not to say that there's not scully centric episodes without molder really in them but i feel like in those episodes like molder's not put as the bad guy exactly. he's not a, he's not ever discredited or like put in the wrong to make her have the spotlight they just give her the spotlight and then he's doing something else just as brilliant and like whatever yeah exactly just as brilliant and valued as ever just somewhere else whereas with her it's like oh no we also need to like make her make a mistake and and like be on the wrong side of justice yeah so Mulder tries to stop them from arresting lucy but he doesn't have to because Lucy is gone by the time they get to her room. Mm-hmm. So their solution, are you ready for this? Yes. It's brilliant. Their solution is to print out a wanted ad with Lucy's face right next to her abusers. And despite the fact that over a dozen witnesses place, placed Lucy on the other side of town at the exact same time that the kidnapping was happening, one of them being her literal coworker who called the ambulance at the exact moment the kidnapping happened. Yep. Scully is on the cop side completely. And at this point, my blood was boiling. So 
we're just going to move through, through the rest of it very quickly. <laughs> Mulder says to Scully that the reason she may have found, the reason that Lucy may have had Amy's blood on her is because she bled it. And at this point, I was like, Scully, bestie, you know I love you, bestie. <laughs> but I was seriously saying, Mulder, walk away from her. You have to walk away. I was like, I'm so sorry, but the way that this scully is written yeah and you made a really good point like when we were talking about this earlier um that like it's very plausible that scully could be in denial at her point in healing and have that kind of internalized um i guess it would be misogyny that like makes like she's like well i'm stronger than that like i dealt with this and i didn't fall apart and become an addict and i didn't do this and like be very hard on lucy um you, you were right that that's really plausible, but it's it's not being sh- – that's only a good, like, way to demonstrate that if you are aware of how that's wrong and, like, how that's a facet of um, trying to heal in the patriarchy and trying to always, like, be in competition with other women. But it's not written with that awareness, so it's just, like, ugh. Yeah. And for some reason, this fits into, like, all women are jealous of each other. That's it. Like the last couple of episodes. I know. And that's going to come up too. Like that's a big theme because then we have Syzygy Syzygy, and War of the Cacrophages. Oh, yeah. Like and those are one after another. Weird. What was in the water? Jealousy. So Scully tries to convince Mulder that he's an idiot with no credibility who has failed to consider Lucy may have Stockholm Syndrome. And Mulder's absolutely not budging at all. He's saying that Amy's abduction triggered some kind of psychic response in Lucy, that it was some kind of empathic transference, hence the identical words and the identical wounds between Amy and Lucy. Mm-hmm. Scully asks if she was innocent. Why? What was she? Hello? Scully asks if she were innocent. What was she running from? I'm taking deep breaths. This is not the Scully that I know and love. What's hard is that, like, while Scully is your sweet baby angel, she's a cop. Dude, I know. It's so rough. I know. That's why I like Professor Arrow Scully. <laughs> yeah. Scully then proceeds to tell Mulder that he's too close to this case because of his personal identification with the victim. Yes, because a man who was traumatized by his sister's kidnapping <laughs> is experiencing the same trauma as a woman who was kidnapped. He literally is like, you know, sometimes I feel like it was me that was taken that day. Literally. I feel like I saw her float out of the room and my spirit went with her. He's like, it was just, it was so hard for me. Meanwhile, Samantha's fucking being tortured somewhere in middle America. That's what I mean. And it's like, that's not to say that his trauma is invalid or that he wasn't traumatized. No, of course it is. You have to deal with your trauma of, (laughs) of, of what you experience. You're, you're, you, you are not, despite what you may think, you are not going through the same trauma of the woman who was actually abducted. Like, no. And that really grinds my fucking gears. But that's, it's the same thing. It's like in the fifties, if a woman was raped like it was as much as traumatizing to her as it was to like say her husband if she were married yes 
Exactly. Because it's a violation of his property. Exactly. Well, and it's like, and that whole trope of like in movies, like women getting raped and their boyfriends or husbands or whatever, like getting so angry and going to, I'm going to kill him. Oh my God. Like yeah. it has, it doesn't have the person who was just harmed's best interest in mind. Literally, it's not even exactly. thinking about them. It's so selfish. That's a really good point. The conversation we had just now is the complete opposite of the conversation that they're that Mulder and Scully are in the middle of having, but we're already <laughs> in the thick of it, so let's just continue. Scully says that Mulder's become too much of an empath, that he's likened Lucy to his sister so severely that it's rendered him, him incapable of seeing her as a criminal. Yes. Mulder, then I will say, delivers a good line. He says... And not everything I do and say and think and feel goes back to my sister. You of all people should realize that sometimes motivations for behavior can be complex and mysterious, can be more complex and mysterious than tracing them back to one single childhood experience. And it's so weird because I'm just realizing this moment feels very similar to the moment at the end when Scully tries to stop Mulder from continuing to resuscitate mm-hmm. um, Amy and then when she tries to push when she tries to push him off of her he then like pushes her arms back and she's very shocked that he would touch her in that way and I think this is very similar because Scully doesn't say much or anything after he says that yeah and I think it is like the same I I made a note of it at the end which I'll say but um I think that they're this is purely David and Jillian's choice because if you are just watching the scene at the end, you'd miss Jillian's reaction. Um, But um, so I fully think that this was acting choices, but I think that there, that moment that we just watched and then the moment at the end, I think that there was that moment of them saying or recognizing or accepting, or maybe just like a, a confirmation of them really being able to come to terms with the fact that they were like okay we have equally deeply we have equally deep investments in each other now and them both knowing that for sure yeah because i think that it's an interesting dynamic that gets displayed in this episode which is that as much as she wants to protect him from the trauma his sister has caused he doesn't want her to care as much as she does and tries to protect her from the baggage that he has. Yeah. So it's like, it's an interesting, but she doesn't want to stop. So it's like, it's an interesting dynamic. And I think that the one good thing that this episode does is play on those two parts. But again, if you're not analyzing it, you'd miss miss that. You wouldn't know. Um, And I think it's what's the one pro I think is that like, while this show brings on different writers often, like this is a new writer, isn't it? Yeah. Who had written before. It was, I don't know if it was his first writing um, credit, but it was his last time, it was his last writing credit. I know that. Oh, okay. Well, it's like the thing with like so many fluctuating writers is that oftentimes all of the, the nuance of their characters gets lost because you're not taking into account what's, because it's not like, an ongoing long-term plot episode after episode and so you forget the little things that have happened that inform their characters but the actors don't because because they played it so exactly yeah that's whether or not it's conscious some things are going to bleed through the way that those things will develop um 
yeah, which is kind of cool. That's a great point. So then all of a sudden after that conversation, the guy who drives the tow truck is there and he gives them the exact location he saw Carl. Mulder then finds where they likely are because they being Amy and Carl because it's near where Lucy was found 17 years ago. So Scully and Mulder get in the car. They're sitting outside the photography place because Mulder figured that he was a photographer because he was one for the school. Mm-hmm. Um, while the other cops speed to the house, they think he's hiding in. However, on the way, they pass Carl in his car. So obviously he's not there when they all get to his house. Yes. Um, along with Mulder and Scully. But Lucy is there in the basement when they all get there. So Scully, you have egg all over your face. Mm-hmm. They find, uh, they look through the pictures and they find the pictures that he's take, Carl has taken of Amy. This is the part where I agree with you saying that um, this is a really good example of how law enforcement treat addicts. Um, mm. Because particularly in this part, the one cop is, is completely um, derogatory to her and completely... Um, in denial about any autonomy that she has or any agency she has. Um, mm-hmm. And so she, they're trying to ask Lucy where Amy and Carl went. And the one cop tells her that if anything happens to the girl, that she'll be tried as an accomplice. And at this point, it's like, I don't even have the words to say anything to respond to that aside from like, just fuck you. Yeah. Like, fuck this. So, and then Lucy confirms what Mulder said, was, which was that she'd been there before when Carl took her when she was a little girl. And then all of a sudden, after Lucy says that, Scully's on Mulder's side. And then Mulder says that he'll take Lucy before the shit-stained cop can arrest her for literally nothing. Um, when they get really, outside... Yeah. I feel like maybe that was... Jillian trying to make sense of that sudden switch in like character because when Lucy's talking Scully's very emotional and looking like very like something hit and she has like tears in her eyes and so maybe that makes her connect to her own yeah. fucking trauma and it, it, it. It, and because then and then she's like no like let him and it seems like she it, it, it looks like Jillian trying to motivate an acting choice that's not written like like yeah you know what I mean like it it really it looks like she's trying to motiv- motivate why she would suddenly be on her side and you can kind of see that if you're only watching her but it's something that's not written in and it's definitely not like featured in the way that it's shot but you can that's, see her doing that work which is kind of cool yeah that's incredible so when they get outside lucy says carl hasn't touched her yet and that if he can't have her all to himself that's when he'll start hurting her this was the point where it's just suddenly occurring to me that this isn't even an X-File anymore. Like, it's just trauma. It's just and, trauma. Like, she, the reason Lucy knows this is not because she can feel what Amy's feeling through some transference, but because she already experienced it. Yeah. And so she can provide information into the trauma that Amy may be experiencing because of what she experienced in the past. Not even by a man, by the same man. Same man, yeah. PTSD is not supernatural. I hate to break it to the writers. Yeah, it's, That's it's not, crazy. It's not the equivalent of vampirism 
or ghosts or like yeah 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 we're like a show about aliens and like vampires and like ptsd you know and like rape trauma like yeah um then it just gets worse and Mulder tries to tell lucy to keep helping amy by pulling a you need to face your trauma now not when you're ready you don't want this to happen to someone else do you which so is fucking ridiculous yucky lucy starts coughing and tells Mulder that they're in the water we cut to carl and amy in the water of course lucy was correct carl knows they're after him so now is the time when he's hurting amy and in turn lucy is drowning with amy but like you know a couple miles away and in a car Mm -hmm. um Mulder and Scully run towards the water of course they find him there they shoot Carl and Amy is unconscious they give her CPR and this actress was 13 Stephen we talked about this maybe there should just be no mouth to mouth at all Yeah, or like I, when I was watching it, it looks like they maybe could have mocked it, like his mouth's really close, but he's not actually pressing his lips on lips every time. I say it to myself, trying to. I don't know. I mean, even because even so, like even if her like that was like she had to sign a consent form to do that kind of um, physical reaction with somebody, it's her parents signing it. So well, it's like you can't consent to anything. Exactly. At Thirteen. Yeah. So it, it's it just feels weird. <laughs> um or you and you could say like you could show him like going down but then not show it exactly that way you don't actually have to do it because it does make sense that they would do cpr there but like you don't need to i don't know so i was watching like maybe they mocked it but i can't yeah interesting um anyway that aside the scene between Mulder and scully is very loaded yeah yeah um and it's just it's just what i said earlier that's what it reveals but what happens I'll say it again, is that Mulder keeps trying to revive Amy. And Scully keeps saying she's gone after a while, that she can't find a pulse. And she tries to get Mulder to stop by pushing him off of Amy. But he pushes her back. And it's just so wild to see Scully react because she never thought Mulder would put his hands on her like that. The scene is really good. I feel like they both really were like feeling their characters and were like, very in the moment and i don't know that it was like necessarily written to be that moving but it really is and they do a really good job and like just seeing it's like you don't realize we would like i can't even fathom what literally trying to resuscitate somebody's body to life with somebody else like that you've been working together to try to save this person like how intimate that is and like like how would that affect your personal relationship with that person? You can never, like, there's never going to be a parallel relationship, like, than what you have with that person that you're working with to do such extreme things. And also, it's like, um, I think the, the, the reading into the scene would be like, Mulder, up until this point, Scully has saved Mulder from himself several times, and it's yeah. been written in the script that that is something that is that audiences should notice and pay attention to and recognize the importance of. And so naturally like that definitely made Scully feel like she kind of had this ultimate um, or this force over him or this um, push with him or, Mm -hmm. um, or pull with him or could, could connect with him in a way that would 
be powerful enough to make him step away from his strongly held belief, right? And so I think that there is the shock in this for her in in the recognition of just how important this is to him, which like, again, that should not be what the episode is about. But I think that there was some recognition for Scully of the fact that this trauma that he is, is still healing from and, and hinders him in his everyday life often yeah. um, is, is the untouchable thing. Like that is the one thing that I cannot pull him back from. And I think that because Jillian's a good actor, she was able to just, she was able to embody all of those things in those like I don't know it was probably like two three seconds yeah that three second clip of her like falling back Mm -hmm. so they revive her she wakes up but then we hear that Lucy is being assisted by EMS back at the house Mulder knows Lucy likely died so that Amy could live so he runs back and then Scully again so out of character is like trying really awkwardly to comfort Amy and not at all like we've seen from her in the past, especially how we just saw Scully comfort Jesse in Too Shy. Um, I know. And then neglecting the fact that this poor girl is likely traumatized by men. These two giant men come and pick her up like like, by her arms. Yeah. Um, After Scully was like, this girl nearly almost drowned. Be careful. And they just like pick her up by her feet. And it's like, well, when we were watching, when I watched this with my mom, she was like, why didn't Scully take off her jacket and give it to her? She said, get blankets. Like, we need hot. Like, why didn't she just, like, cover her up with that? I was like, yeah. Because it's written by men, Sheree. Yep. We don't think about those things. So Mulder gets back to the house, and like he suspected, Lucy's dead. And he's caressing her dead body and, like, weeping over her. He's making this whole thing about himself, about how he failed her, and not about how a woman who is simply trying to move on with her life is now dead because of the violence inflicted on her by a man. But really, X-Files peace has been restored. So, whatever. I have so many notes about this last, like, ten seconds here. Not even ten seconds, like, two minutes. Because, like, just... It's just an angry rant. So, Barrett, can I let it out here? Okay, yeah, go for it. Um, Just the fact that Lucy has to die for the little girl to live is so fucking fucked. Like, I don't even know where to start with it. Because, like, why is it on her back? Like, why is she the one who has to sacrifice herself when she, has a fuck- when she was a fucking victim to begin with? Like, like, it should have just been that just the abuser had to die for them both to continue living and flourishing. Or don't tell the fucking story. And, and then why does Mulder identify with this when Scully is right there? She was also kidnapped. And it's just so fucked up and so, like, riddled with this male savior complex that it makes me want to pull off each fingernail one by one. Oh, dear. Yours or Mulder's? Either. <laughs> so... The last scene is Mulder and Scully in Lucy's apartment. Mulder's looking at old photographs of Lucy as a child, as if he knew her. Scully's telling him that Amy's going to be fine and that despite being dragged through the woods, she had no injuries and not even uh, a scratch on her. While she says the autopsy showed five liters of water in Lucy's lungs. 
And so, like, when they asked, when Mulder asked how serious were her injuries, they do talk about her, like, physical injuries, but the overriding meaning is, like, asking if she was raped, because they said that earlier, they're like, he hasn't heard her yet, like, yeah. and I just wish people would say it, because she has been hurt, like, she was taken, and, like, and at that point, earlier in the episode, she had, he had, she had scratches on her face. Like, she was hurt. She still is hurt here, even though she's had physical injuries. And it's, like, you can sense that that's, like, what they're alluding to. And it just feels, like, I, like you're never going to be able to tackle anything about rape culture if you're afraid to say the word rape. And if you're going to write a fucking episode about a man kidnapping a woman, like, you better get comfortable talking about that shit. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's an interesting dynamic because I wonder if that's how it is in real law enforcement when there's a child when there's a child involved. I know, I don't know. Um, if they use that sort of coded language just for like the, um, you know, j- just how for sensitive every- it is. everybody's sake, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I don't know. I mean, maybe that is like respectful to not talk graphically, like in normal conversation. Um, but like when you're the law enforcement that's meant to be dealing with that, I feel like you need to talk factually and like, I think that contributes to the stigma around it. Yeah. I mean, Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's, I, people could very well disagree with that, but. No, I agree with that for sure. So then Scully says probably the worst line of the entire show. She says, Mulder, Lucy saved Amy, but you saved both of them. You're the real hero here, not the woman who died to save another young girl or the young girl herself who's been severely traumatized and hurt and yet managed to still try and save herself. So fucking ridiculous. Mulder's the hero. Then Mulder says, like, the second dumbest thing I've ever heard, which is that Lucy had to die to forget her trauma and and escape her trauma and outrun her abuser. So... Women can only ever know, truly know peace if they're dead. When they're dead. Great. It's just, it's like Lucy absorbed all of her pain for what? So that Amy can continue to live in a world that doesn't support her. And then the fucking cops just pat themselves on the back as if they did anything. And Mulder's like, yeah, wow, I made that connection. That was so sick of me. The final message is literally that Lucy bore the brunt of the violence so that Amy could survive when it's like, let, let, maybe let's just let women survive, period. Yeah. Maybe let's have, like, the people in the justice system actually do their job. Yeah. That too. It's like, there's a really dark irony here because I feel like frequently it's the oppressed that saves each other. But, and that's what's shown here, which is, which is realistic. It's one of those, it's like, that's what the X-Files is notorious at, is like depicting really dark realities without realizing that they're doing so. So then yeah, it doesn't really mean anything. There's two um, pretty damaging things that I read about this episode. And the one is um, not surprising, just shocking. Or, yeah, whatever. Um, but they basically, they based this episode around an actual young girl who had been held hostage in a, ba- in a basement. And, Seriously? Um, yeah. Oh I my mean, God. yes. And the second point <coughs> that I'll make is that it was this was actually a watered-down version of the original script. Um, I have a quote, I, which I can read next. But um, not only was it based roughly around a true story, but it was also um, Rob Goodwin was quoted saying, 
a terrible thing had happened two weeks earlier up in Vancouver to a little girl who was a friend of our construction coordinator's daughter. She was abducted and killed. So it hit very close to home. I remember that being a somber experience. And it's like, if you find that out about somebody on your staff and you don't completely scrap the episode because of how close it hits to home. I know. But then I thought that's not any surprise because they literally wrote in a storyline about a young girl who dies when the one of the main stars of the show had a daughter around the exact same age as the, as the character. Cute. Cute behavior. So it's like... Not they, at all emotionally manipulative or violating. Not at all. And then the second point being that this was a watered-down version of the original script that Fox, their standards and practices department, did... Um, they issued, like, a ton of notes with how much they were concerned about certain aspects of the show. Of the episode, I mean. Um, and one of them was they... The script was initially written to involve the abduction of a 12-year-old girl. Um, and Fox thought that that was too close to the case that actually happened in real life. So they changed it to 13. So they changed... No, no, no. So they changed it to 15 or 16, and they cast a 13-year-old actor to play her. Oh. What the fuck? Um, yeah. And then it says, in addition, the network was, quote, very frightened that we would play her terrified, Kim Manners said. So a point was made of trying to downplay Amy's ordeal. Oh, my God. This so is they, like a sign that you just shouldn't do the episode. It, yeah. They, they, they thought that the script and what this actress would be forced to act out would have actually traumatized her in real life if they had hired a 12-year-old. Which doesn't even matter because they hired a 13-year-old. So what difference does it make? Yeah. And that's the episode. And that is the episode. Do you want to do Jillian's Corner? Yes, please. Okay, let's sing. Jillian's Corner. Jillian's Corner. I was trying to get in sync with you, but I don't, I don't know if it's possible. Well, it's like we start off and I'm like, oh, this is going really well. And then, and then the delay comes and then we're just, and then and we both start to try to fresh. keep up with the other one and then it's all. We should all really just like shit. close our eyes and just go at the same time and try to listen to the other one. Okay. Well, okay. Next time. So for today's Jillian's Corner, we are to tie into education and, um, all that jazz. We did um, have a tie-in, and I can't remember what it was. <laughs> That's a tie-in, right? Okay, yeah, yeah, that was a tie-in. Um, we're gonna talk today. Jillian um, Anderson posted. <laughs> In case you don't know who we're talking about, um, posted a a podcast. Um, yeah, it was called "Young, Hot, and Bothered: Going Through Menopause in My 30s. Um, and it's um, a podcast with The Guardian. And Jillian posted that today and was like, um, this is really important for something for women for all ages to listen to. Um, and I agree. And I sent it to my mom because um, she, my mom went into early menopause at around 42, 43, which isn't as early as in your 30s, but still about a decade too early. Um, 
because she got really, really sick and it kind of threw her body into early menopause. And she had no fucking idea what was happening to her um, or why and had zero preparation for that um, because menopause is this like very taboo topic that nobody wants to discuss or shed any light on, but Mm -hmm. that over half the population goes through. Um, and I think it's really cool that that's something that Jillian's been very vocal about. Um, and I know that it's, um, I share a lot of what Jillian says with my mom. Um, and I appreciate that my mom has been so open with me about those struggles. Uh, and so we were going to yeah. post a clip of Jillian and Jennifer Nadel on Dr. Oz talking a little bit about that, because I know when they went on their We Book tour, they talked a lot about um, that was a topic. Yeah. And I think what's so interesting, I have a couple of points. Um, what I think was so interesting about that interview, which it, I forget it happens every single time, but there's a moment where Jillian can't remember um, another yeah. um, hormone like therapy, right? Yeah. Is what you would call it. Yeah. Um, option. And so she looks at Jennifer Natal, like, and she says what it is because she remembers. And Dr. Oz is like, why, why did you, why did you look at her? Because they start like laughing about yeah. it. Yeah. And it's like, even in that space, like where the whole point of this interview, the whole point of this discussion is to destigmatize and, um, and, and normalize talking about menopause and relying on your female friends, relying on other people who are going through this yeah. to normalize it and to get through it. Um, he, he questioned like why they were why they helping each other we're helping each other i was i always forget that that happens and i'm equally shocked by it every single time and it really bothers me i mean that's fair it's but i think it is a cool display on behalf of them of oh like my god just like totally. the little nuances of of that kind of camaraderie um, totally but it's annoying to see it happen oh yeah not to see that happen but to see him ask that real time his stupid reaction yeah um um the other thing is is that someone the other day which is wow what a tie-in tweeted (laughs) tweeted i think you you sent me the um the screenshot of it it just the difference between um dana scully's plot line at 50 oh my god yeah bet porter who's the main character in the l words plot at 50 um and that, uh, you know, we all know how Dana Scully's journey ends, whereas <laughs> Bet was written by women um, and she is like openly having sex. She's openly talking about menopause. She's openly going through the different things that one goes through when you're menopausal and you're trying to come to terms with these different changes in your life. And... I think that that's so, that's like one of my, okay, maybe I'm just in love with her, but that's one of my favorite parts of this. We're, we're on generation Q. So we're on mm-hmm. like the revival part of the L word. Yeah. But no, that is I, one of I my agree. favorite parts. No, me too. Because it, I think it's so interesting to see that um, portrayed so casually and normally yeah. and um, accurately uh, versus whatever the fuck the X-Files did with <laughs> Dana Scully's fertility. Jesus Christ. Like, well, there's so many. That's what my whole thesis was on. And I, I, I still can't even unpack it. Well, it's nice because it's like, um, Bet is still very much so the woman that she was in the original run. 
And that's not to say that she hasn't matured and she hasn't grown, but despite the fact that she is experiencing menopause, she is still herself. Mm-hmm. And she hasn't been altered in a way that would suggest that her life is miserable now. <laughs> and that because she's going through this, she's experiencing some sort of loss. Like all of, all of the typical things that you see portrayed when women are going through this change in their life. Um, that, that's not to say that that doesn't happen. That's to say that it's nice to see the other side of it. Like it's mm-hmm. nice to see that women can go through this change and handle it very gracefully and still retain themselves and take it in their stride. Like so much of, um, like so, so many women do with other things in their lives. Whereas like with Dana Scully, it was like, she, I, I don't even know who that woman in the final episode is. I don't know who that is. No. Yeah. Right. Like, and so there's that part of it. Getting back to the inter- interview with Jillian and the podcast that she recommended, I think that that's so cool because I had the complete opposite experience with my mom. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was actually one of the worst times in um, the relationship that I had with her. Oh, really? I, I haven't heard about this. Yeah. And the relationship that my family sort of just had, like our whole dynamic shifted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it was because she uh, was in denial about it for a really long time. Yeah. And um, it was really, really bad. And um, I know uh, Jennifer Needle talks about how she was misdiagnosed and, and the um, challenges that that presented because of what she was diagnosed with being like anxiety and then being being tested for fucking alzheimer's or dementia or early onset yeah and like how traumatizing i know and so um that happened with my mom where she was experiencing like an anxiety um that she had never experienced before in her life um Mm -hmm. and it strained all of our relationships with her um, like exponentially to the point mm-hmm. where, um, it was, it was really, I mean, it was really, really bad. And I didn't recognize the woman who had been yeah. my mom for so many years. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, my, my relationship with my mom was really, really strained during that time as well. Yeah. Um, we, we now are better than ever and have like have an open dialogue about it. But at the time, because she hardly knew what was happening to her, I definitely didn't. And it was interesting too, like how that dynamic, because it was interesting to see how my dad dealt with it, which was mm. not well at all. Um, yeah. And my mom ended up going on um, an anti-anxiety medication, an antidepressant, all of these different medications. What she needed um, was hormones. What she needed was hormones, exactly. And um, and there was no open dialogue around that at all. And so we were kind between my father and my mom, between my mom's doctor and my mom, between my mom and my sister and I, like there was nothing happening. And so um, not only did that strain the relationship I had with her, but that also strained my relationship with like womanhood a little bit because I, um, well, that's the thing is that 
frequently our relationships with our mothers um, have a massive influence on our um, relationship with um, with just womanhood and with the things that our body's going to go through and that's not that doesn't define womanhood but yeah, I mean exactly. um, and recognizing that it that it there, there was an element of that there for me yeah and yeah exactly and so it's like improving education around these topics isn't only going to help our mothers it's going to help us it's going to help our children it's going yep. to help it's like it, it's all it's all connected you know well, and it goes back to like why we wanted to include the beginning bit in this podcast, which is just that like education is uh, knowledge and information is powerful, to quote Jean Milburn. <laughs> and, um, and it's true. The more you talk about something, the less uh, taboo it becomes. Yeah. And, and I would say even like... I think the issue with menopause is that none of it is, none of it is glamorous. And so usually like when people say like, oh, well, if you talk about sex, then it becomes destigmatized, which is not necessarily true. And I know I've talked about a theorist um, on here, um, Michel Foucault, who talks about like, who believes that the more we talk about sex, the more taboo it actually becomes. Um, but I think, but I think that that is because there are glamorous parts of sex. Like there are intriguing parts of sex. Yeah. So, um, whereas with menopause, like the, you have no choice, but to face the reality of it. Well, it, it, it's so interesting to me. It's because it's like erectile dysfunction is like, well, whatever. Like, you know, oh, like totally. it happens as you get older. Like we have some things to help with it. No shame. Like I, not, there shouldn't be right. Like that's how it should exactly. be. But why isn't that same well, and like, also, I was watching a TikTok, fucking TikTok, the other day, um, that was kind of about like all the ways that the like world systems are set up to favor cis white men, right? Like, you're not surprised, but like seeing little examples, like, um, always is an eye opener. And it was talking about how the majority of um, like medications and medicines are tested and tried on cis men. And so mm, yeah. we don't even really know the effect that it's going to have on anybody else. And so there was a whole, um, like, almost, like, basically, like, epidemic of, of women dying of overdoses on what are now very, uh, like, ibuprofen and Tylenols and things yeah. like that because they didn't have the dosage right for other people's bodies. Yep. And, and even, like, with, I know with heart attacks, the symptoms for women are different, are different. than the symptoms for yeah. men. And so this is all to say that the healthcare system uh, <laughs> and healthcare in general is racist and sexist. Yeah. Um, and but um, Julia Anderson talks about it on Dr. Yeah. Oz. <laughs> and that fixes all of the problems everything everything (laughs) this podcast she posted in that conversation just ended every stigma around menopause (laughs) it ended oppression yep that's what we're completely (laughs) anyways it it, um it triggered some healthy conversation with us exactly and and that's making a difference so you give it a listen all right (laughs) do it for me do it for me betty for dan Go go you go give it a listen and you get back to me, all right. I want to know all your thoughts. But seriously, I think 
Oh, I'm Jillian, being serious. I know you are. But like, <laughs> as a closing point, it's like you and I have talked about, okay, and if anyone else has had this experience, but you and I have talked about how we had that American Girl doll book about oh God, yeah. puberty, right? Yes. And we were given it much earlier than we were experiencing the things that it talks about. Yes. And so horrifying. It was so horrifying. I was terrified. I shoved like I'm gonna it. Get hair wet. Yes, I shoved it in the bottom of my drawer on my desk, and I it, it was the first taste of anxiety I ever felt, just yeah. knowing that it was in my bottom drawer. <laughs> I remember seeing that and being so uncomfortable. Like it just like it erupted I, I can you can still feel it now totally. even though i passed it like thinking about when i got my first period and, and that t- just that time yes. like i still feel anxious about that even though i literally have a sex podcast because like, of the I fucking book because of that because fucking of that book fucking american girl thought book and here's the thing okay i you know what jillian i applaud you because the thing is, is that a lot of people might be like, why are these two 20-year-olds talking about menopause? But <laughs> A lot of people, you might but, be asking yourself. Okay, yeah, you may be asking yourself. <laughs> but what if I told you that this is actually, this is, these are actually the conversations that need to happen because if people, like if we had been talking about puberty before we hit it, when it approached us and when we were in it, it may not have seemed as daunting. Yeah. And we would have been fully prepared for what was happening. If they and didn't fucking separate us at school and make exactly. us like have different education separate from one another and it became this like hidden shameful topic. Like that all and that at nine years old, that's what starts that shame and that separation and that lack of connection between knowledge of other people's bodies, nonetheless your own. Yep. There's nothing ugly. Okay. Well, there's a lot uglier, but one of the ugliest things is men who are perplexed, cis men who are perplexed by how tampons work. Like that's ugly behavior. Nothing and the same thing me like a fucking desert than <laughs> those fucking videos of cis men being like, Oh my God, it opens up. It opens up inside. Like, get- and that's Chad? the issue. That's the issue. It's socialization. So yeah. if we can start this change, you know what? Laugh at us. I don't give a shit. Okay. <laughs> I am fully in love with multiple menopausal women. Okay. So this <laughs> absolutely has to do with me and not just because I will eventually experience it. It has to do with me because <laughs> I love and care about women who are going through menopause, who have been through menopause, who are perimenopausal and Therefore, it is my fucking it is my fucking responsibility to educate myself and learn about things that are happening even though they are not happening to me personally. Yeah. No, I don't think that anybody was thinking that you shouldn't be talking about it, but I'm That's happy not that what out. I'm saying. <laughs> the whole <laughs> the whole point is that no, I hear you. Jillian <laughs> is saying, let's talk about it. Let's break the stigma. That's the whole fucking point, Stevie. Oh, so okay, I am Emily. saying I agree with her. Jeez. I'm sure you do. <laughs> what is we- that supposed to be? <laughs> Emily and I went to dinner with my mom, and my mom was asking about, you know, the women that Emily is attracted to, like you do. Um, I felt so bad. Went further than that, bestie. Well, um, 
and she was talking about Jillian and my mom was like well you wouldn't date her now like and she's like no yeah yeah I would she's like at her age now she's like yeah and the fact that that was perplexing to my mom um I was like my mother needs to realize that if she was a famous celebrity she would she would be on MILF Twitter so many people would be in love with her I know but it's like and it just made me sad that she doesn't think that she's like lovable in that way you know no she doesn't think she's lovable she fucking knows she's hot but like (laughs) it it was beautiful that your love for jillian opened up a world that like young girls might want to love her (laughs) not that it matters never mind (laughs) Um, love is love (laughs) no but there is something there right l is no because no because women women are socialized it's the flea bag quote women are socialized that like once they are once they are past the reproductive age once they are past the age of being physically desirable then they're useless yeah right they can't reproduce they can't get a man hard so like what's the point of them right that's how men view it that's how society wants women to view it realistically women are free (laughs) yes right yeah and but that socialization is fucking you know it's one hell of a drug and so it's like of course your mom feels that way and i'm sure a lot of women feel that way because that is how they are they've been socialized that is what they've been led to believe yep um and that's a whole other topic but point of this anyways, is anyways watch um stream jillian anderson on menopause <laughs> and if you're menopausal chances are i'm also in love with you so yeah. don't hop, be so hard on yourself hop into her dms i'm the door is wide open <laughs> there's a joke there i'm not gonna make it but okay the door is wide open anyways thanks for listening <laughs> we love you to pieces remove your ego um have some hot sex like and by hot i mean like physically hot like the weather like um, don't turn on your air conditioning like don't turn on your air conditioning <laughs> like if you're in but also Australia, don't pass out yeah no no hydrate <laughs> we love you thanks for listening we'll see you next time on the, the sex files bye goodbye bye betty says goodbye <laughs> <laughs> three two one stop